This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Among Reformed folk, there is no question whether Christ is Lord over all things. There is indeed not one square inch over which Christ has not said, This is mine. Nevertheless, questions about how to relate the scriptures and the Christian faith to contemporary civil life remain. Dr. David Vendrunen, Robert P. Strimple, professor of systematic theology and Christian ethics, has recently contributed to a collection of essays exploring this question. The title, Law and the Bible, Justice, Mercy, and Legal Institutions, is available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, you've co-edited this volume with Robert Cochran, and you are a contributor to it, Law and the Bible, Justice, Mercy, and Legal Institutions. So the title sort of lays out the major topics that you're describing or working on in this volume. There's a lot of discussion in Scripture of law and in contemporary biblical studies. Is this where you're starting with this volume as you're thinking about the relationship between civil law and Scripture, or how are you coming at this? Well, in order to answer that question, it may be helpful to know a little bit about the background of this book and who's contributing to it. This book was the idea of my co-editor, Bob Cochran, who is a law professor at Pepperdine University. And I've known Bob for a number of years now, and he, a number of years ago, proposed this idea that perhaps we could do a volume like this in which each chapter is co-written by a Christian law professor and a theologian, looking at different parts of Scripture and reflecting on what sorts of things they may tell us about civil law, about justice, about the legal profession, as a book that would have some special interest for the lawyer, the law student, the law professor, but also for those who have a more general interest in issues of Christianity and culture and political and legal life. Actually, to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical of this project when it began, but Bob Cochran is a very—he's a hard person to say no to. He's a serious evangelical believer and has been a real leader among Christians in the legal academy for a while, and he is a great facilitator and collaborator, and he also runs a large institute at Pepperdine called Notebar Institute, which was going to help fund this project in its initial stages and hope to bring all the contributors together to Malibu. California one February. That's not quite as an attractive a thing for people who live in San Diego County, but for most people, the opportunity to go to Malibu, California in February is quite attractive. So all that's to say that this book came together as a collaborative project among law professors and theologians, the theologians, including a number of biblical scholars, who bring their expertise in some of these questions about the place of law in biblical studies and some theological and ethical questions, and these law professors who who bring a real interest in the practical areas of legal life and some of the important questions about what it means to be a legal professional or to be involved in our legal system. It's an interesting question because a lot of people, I think, broadly in the culture might assume that it's one thing to be a Christian, and given the standing that lawyers seem to have in the culture, it's another thing to be a lawyer. So maybe we can take a rabbit trail for just a minute and just talk a little bit about what it means to be a Christian lawyer 
and what it means to try to live out your faith in that context. Sure. I mean, there's a sense in which it's not radically different from that question which people in any kind of profession are going to be asking. But there is a sense when you think of being a member of the legal profession, there's a particular role, a particular task, a particular calling a person has to be promoting justice in society. And that's obviously, it's a huge thing. It's foundational. I mean, without that, you can't have a whole lot else in society. And I think it is hard for a lot of lawyers to see in their particular small little place that they have in the legal world, seeing how they're really contributing to the overall well-being of society. And so, in part, this book is trying to explore these bigger questions about the place of justice in society and the importance that law has and the fact that, well, God is a God of justice. He has called us as his image bearers to be promoters of justice, and he has ordained civil institutions that are called to administer justice. And even though all the contributors to this book don't have any kind of theonomic position, so aren't looking, for example, to the Mosaic Law as some kind of blueprint for civil government, we all recognize that the Bible actually has a lot to say about justice and about civil institutions. So it's that kind of question which the book is exploring in a lot of different ways. As I asked the question, I was thinking of a bumper sticker or a bus ad that I saw. I never see bus ads that say, want cake? Call 1-800-GET-BAKER. But uh, I do see ads that say, injured? Call 1-800-GET-A-LAWYER. And so we experience a world in which lawyers and law play an increasingly important role in our life and an invasive role in some ways. So it seems particularly important for Christians to be thinking faithfully and biblically about how they can fulfill their vocations. Well, I think part of it is that lawyers have a certain power. And I think it's true also of medical doctors. And of course, we would think of lawyers and doctors as being sort of the two very prominent professions. And in part, it's because lawyers and doctors have a specialized knowledge about matters that are extremely important. You know, we don't bother seeing physicians unless there's something wrong with our bodies. And when there's something wrong with our bodies, that's very, very important to us. And we don't see lawyers unless there is, well, we, we will see lawyers for proactive reasons to write up a will or something, but it's only either in prospectively trying to avoid legal problems or retrospectively trying to deal with legal problems. And if we have legal problems, that's very important to us. So I, I think we, we recognize that by being specialists and experts in the law, and the law has a lot of power to help us or to harm us, there are some special responsibilities that come if one is a lawyer for doing one's job well. I've never been subpoenaed by a baker. Uh, and you probably <laughs> never will. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Scripture says, as the book indicates, a great deal about law and justice. And at the same time, American culture is in some ways enthusiastic about law and justice, but Scripture speaks about law and justice in a way that our culture does not often do. Help us relate those two things. I think you can probably say that in American culture, broadly speaking, historically, has had a high view of the rule of law. We've taken pride in our constitution, in a stable court system, in having legislators that are accountable to us. I think there's probably a sense in which some of that is fraying recently. I mean, there's some real massive problems with our criminal justice system. Those of us who live in 
safe suburban communities don't really feel it. But if you live in a tough urban neighborhood, you, you will very quickly see massive problems in the criminal justice system. And no one really trusts legislators anymore. And I think there is some fraying of that pride, maybe a healthy pride that Americans have had about their legal system in the past. But part of one of the things that our book explores is, in some ways, a great variety of things that Scripture says about law and justice. I think one of the things that we see in God is that God is one who creates order and a God who enforces order. He is a legislator and he is a judge. And we who are image bearers of God have an analogous kind of task. God didn't create the world in a way that was already perfectly ordered in every respect. I mean, we have a responsibility to develop societies, to develop cultures, and we are called to order those in ways that are just. And we're also called as image bearers to be those who enforce the law. You think about, I hope we'll have a chance to come back to this later, but Genesis 9 verse 6 in the covenant with Noah, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood, for God made man in his own image. And I think that appeal to the image of God has a lot to say about that task of being the kind of people who are interested in justice and maintaining order in civil society. And yet we see in Scripture instances of justice being done, but we see a whole lot of instances of injustice being done, and we see God's interest in justice, both among his covenant people and in the world at large. The book spent some time, your chapter two, spent some time talking about the contemporary use of the biblical civil law. And that category assumes a distinction with which the listener may or may not be familiar. And that's a threefold distinction between the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. Walk us through that briefly. Well, that distinction between the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws traditionally refers to the law of Moses. I mean, this is a common distinction in the Reformed tradition, but it goes back long before the Reformation. And that distinction basically is a way of trying to recognize that there are certain aspects of the law of Moses that are permanently binding for all human beings. And we call that the moral law. There's nothing distinctive about that law for Old Testament Israel. There's also the ceremonial law, which has to do in large part with Israel's distinctive worship and other things that really had to do with Israel's religious life as the Old Testament people before the coming of the Messiah. And the Reformed tradition and the broader Christian tradition has historically said that we're not under the civil law. There's much we can learn about it, but we see it primarily pointing ahead to Christ and his work and it has been fulfilled. The civil law is a way of recognizing that in the law of Moses, there were a lot of regulations that ordered Israel's common civil life together. They were people who, they worked, they traded, sometimes they killed each other, sometimes they stole from each other. There were some common laws that that needed to be enforced in order to keep order in Israelite society. And the Christian church and the Reformed tradition has recognized that it's it's a little more complicated with the civil law than it is with the moral or the ceremonial law, because we recognize that there is a lot we can learn. There, there, there's a lot of these things that are just basic justice in relations among people that we find reflected in the law of Moses, in the civil law. But we also recognize that there are things about it that are geared towards their distinctive position. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, refers to the general equity of these civil laws which is a way of saying we need to be looking at these laws and trying to recognize that basic justice that we find in them. And there's a lot we can learn about our own conduct in our own civil societies, but we're not supposed to be taking these laws verbatim as the laws for our own society. 
Let me just clarify a point. When our book refers to the civil law, we're not primarily referring to the civil law of the Mosaic Law. We're referring to civil law in the sense of the law that binds in the United States or in another country today. But what we recognize is that these civil laws are in a lot of ways similar and analogous to those civil laws of ancient Israel. That's helpful. I appreciate that. Because I was thinking about, as you were referring to a moment ago, Westminster 19.4, just for the listener in case everyone's not familiar, to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, meaning national Israel, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. You were already reflecting a little bit on general equity, but can you flesh that out for just a moment and then we'll press on. In my historical research on natural law in the Reformed tradition, it became pretty evident to me, looking especially at a lot of 16th and 17th century theologians, that appeals to equity and appeals to natural law really went hand in hand. Basically, what this is saying is that, I mean, we can read the black letter of a law that we can find in a statute or the law that a court has ruled upon, but we also recognize that there is often a lot more to a law than just what is in the letter. And often, even if a legislator has a very good intent, Sometimes you take that law and you try to apply it very literally, and you don't really get a just outcome. And one of the things that the general equity refers to is really that basic justice that underlies sort of that written law, that black letter law. And it's basically asking us to recognize that there is this underlayer of natural law justice, of basic equity that underlies these mosaic civil laws. And it's the core of that justice that we still want to see worked out in our own legal systems. We don't need to have the black letter law of the Mosaic law in our legal system. In fact, if we did, it would be a very bad thing. It would be kind of a disaster. But we do want the core of that justice. And that's really what the general equity idea gets at. Explain quickly why it would be a disaster. I mean, after all, that law is God's word. And you're certainly not saying that God's word is a disaster. So help us make the connection. Sure. I'll give you two basic reasons why. Perhaps the most important one is that the whole of the Mosaic Law was given to God's Old Testament covenant people, who were a theocratic people who received the law for a particular time in redemptive history. And I think Galatians 3 sets that out perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. The law was added on for a time, for a particular purpose of imprisoning God's people under sin and being a pedagogue to the coming of Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. And so, If we try to apply all of the provisions of this Mosaic law that was meant for a theocratic people living before the time of Christ, that would not be appropriate. It would not work. It would be highly unfitting if we try to apply that to the United States of America, which is not God's covenant people and exists after the coming of Christ. But another thing I will mention, it's maybe a secondary point, but I still think pretty important, is that the Old Testament civil law was given to an ancient Near Eastern people. The cultural conditions in which Israel lived 3,000 years ago were extremely different from ours. And you can still try to capture the same basic principles of justice with very different concrete laws. And I think that's what actually we need. If you live in early 21st century 
Southern California, you need a lot of different kinds of laws than what you needed if you lived in ancient Israel 1000 BC. And so it's those kinds of considerations which should help us to understand why you just don't want to start applying the Mosaic laws just as they are without reckoning with a very different situation in which we find ourselves. And to make your point, yes, it is God's word, and it should have been obeyed by God's people, and it would have been so much better for them if they had obeyed it. But I think one of the things we get from Galatians 3 is that God did not intend that law to be in force for any other people other than Old Testament Israel. So it's not a matter of rejecting God's word, it's a matter of recognizing what God's word was given for, for what purpose and for whom. And what you're articulating is not some sort of radical position, right? This is the teaching of Calvin, and it's the teaching of the Westminster Assembly, right? That's right, yeah. This is just common, reformed stuff. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited. Register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor's doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You mentioned earlier that the civil life seems in some ways to be fraying And some people are reacting to this fraying or the decline by insisting that we need, we Christians need to bring scripture to bear on the civil order. Should we do that? And if so, how do we do that? Well, in a lot of ways, that's the big question that the whole book is exploring. As I begin to answer that question, one thing that I will mention that readers should probably be aware of is that not all the contributors to this book are reformed. Many of them are, but not all of them are. And so I just want readers to know that is that they're going to be reading a broader perspective. I mean, they're they're all somewhere in the broader evangelical world, at least. But I just want to make that clear. But one of the things that we, I think all of the contributors recognize is that there is no, there's no simplistic way to try try to bring to bear the relevance of Scripture upon our civil life. All the contributors recognize that there are a lot of really easy ways to kind of take text out of Scripture and kind of slap them on to a particular civil question. Our book is exploring, by looking at a lot of different parts of Scripture, how do different parts of Scripture, the Old Testament historical narratives, the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament prophets, Old Testament wisdom literature, Jesus teaching in the Gospels. I think part of the thing that our book does is to recognize that these different parts of Scripture actually address civil law in different ways, and we need to be sensitive to that if we're going to handle Scripture well. And we also recognize that there is always a really important place for questions of wisdom. Scripture just doesn't lay out sort of a pattern of civil law in detail. 
detail for us now, for the United States of America or any other country today. And we also recognize that there's an important place for history in that we want to learn from Christians before us who have reflected upon issues of civil law and justice. And we want to let those considerations of wisdom and also of our broader Christian tradition help to inform us the way that we try to use Scripture in ways that are responsible rather than ways that are simplistic and ultimately misleading. Before we dive into the chapter that you co-wrote with Randy Beck, one more sort of prefatory or preparatory question, and that is this. The beginning of all things, sometimes called protology, and eschatology, the end of all things, are closely related, and sometimes people have focused on one or the other, and it seems like you want to try to keep these things together. I wonder, too, if in America we don't have a kind of lopsided emphasis either on one or the other, but as we think about applying God's word to civil life, the way we do that is often influenced, shaped by what we expect or how we expect things to work out in the future, that is our eschatology. Now, that's been a problem for a long time. Heinrich Bullinger, in the Second Helvetic Confession, which he wrote in 1561, published in 1566, condemned those who sought to achieve what he called a golden Jewish dream, a time when all of God's enemies are conquered and there's a millennial golden age on the earth. How do you think about these things. That's a big question, and it's certainly something that comes out strongly in the chapter that I co-wrote. And I think this is true of the book in general, that it is, it's pretty decidedly non-utopian. It actually probably helps that half the authors are law professors and not theologians. I think people who are actually maybe in the legal profession and have actually seen it from the inside may actually be a little bit less enthusiastic and optimistic about what law can actually accomplish. Now, when we're talking about protology or the first things, I think one way to think about that is the the present order of this creation. And we have promises from God that he is going to uphold this world. He's going to continue to reveal himself and his law in this world. And through common grace, he's going to uphold the basic structures and institutions of this world. But at the same time, we are not promised in Scripture that this present created order is going to turn into some sort of utopia. And law is, in fact, a very—it's not a good instrument for creating utopia. That's a really important point. Well, yeah. When you think about it, I mean, what does law do? Law comes in, in a sense, you know, at least the way we think about our legal system. I mean, it wants to create order, wants to create a basic framework for life. But law is the best when you don't see it that much, when people actually have their own creative responsibilities. And the law really comes into play when there are problems. It, in a sense, tries to mop up messes. You think of law the way we think of referees in a football game. I think that's a helpful analogy in a lot of ways. Not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a pretty good analogy. It's there to keep order and to try to clean things up when there's a problem. And that's not really the way you create utopia. And I think that is a theme, even though our book is trying to encourage law students and lawyers and others who may be involved in some way in the legal or political world, that faithful obedience to God can make a difference, that you can do real good in this world. You can show love for your neighbor by doing this. But you have to remember that it's never going to be our hope. And the eschaton, the age of the things to come, is brought about by the gospel, which the law itself can never do. And that is a really important thing always to keep in mind. So what can Christians learn from Noah, and particularly Genesis 9, about how to navigate life in this world before the utopia and after the fall? Sure. So the listener knows you're now 
beginning to ask me about my own chapter. I wrote a chapter on Genesis. This is actually the first chapter in the book with Randy Beck, who is a law professor at the University of Georgia. Professor Beck is a really fine, reformed Christian. He's an elder in the PCA, and we had a really good working collaborative relationship in putting this chapter together. I think Genesis is, I mean, it's obviously foundational for so many reasons. It's Genesis. It is Genesis. Uh, It does come first. But I really don't think there's any more important book in Scripture for understanding law or even understanding a lot of other questions related to our life in this culture. And one of the very important reasons why Genesis is so important is because of this covenant with Noah that we find beginning at the end of Genesis 8, continuing on through Genesis 9. This is the covenant that God makes after the great flood. And there are a number of reasons why it's really important for thinking about law. For one thing, it actually talks about law. There are only three requirements that are actually mentioned in this covenant, but one of them is, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. This is actually a command, I think we properly understand this as a command, that human beings themselves have an authority to seek justice in this world and to punish wrongdoers. That's a high responsibility. God is ultimately in charge of this, but he delegates this task to his image bearers. So that's one reason why this is important. Another thing I think is really important is that the covenant with Noah is a universal covenant. It's made with Noah, with his children after him, and it's made with every living creature, not only all human beings, but also even with all the animals. I mean, it is as universal as it can get. And this may be something that we skip over very easily as we're just reading through the book of Genesis, but when God says, he who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, that's a command to the whole human race. It's not just to believers. And so it is actually when unbelievers— become lawyers, when they become judges, when they are involved in the legal system, they're actually, they don't realize this, but they're actually obeying, they're obeying God's command. And there's nothing illegitimate about unbelievers holding civil offices, about being judges, prosecutors. If there was, Romans 13 would be highly problematic. Well, yeah, I mean, Romans 13 really wouldn't make much sense without Genesis 9. I mean, that gets to a whole bunch of other questions. It gets to the question that you asked me previously about our eschatology. When we understand that God has actually ordained that legal systems should be run by believers and unbelievers alike, that itself should temper some of our enthusiasm about thinking we could create some kind of utopia through our legal system. But it also offers us some real reason to seek collaboration with unbelievers in our legal life, not just if we're involved in a lawsuit, but in the way that we work with each other to try to order our societies in peaceful ways. We are called to do that alongside of unbelievers. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict, but God has, by his common grace— ordain the world in in such a way that he does actually accomplish many just purposes through the collaboration of believers and unbelievers. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That's a really important distinction, it seems to me, because on the one hand, there's no question that Christ is Lord over all things. But some people infer from that truth that Christians should seek to exercise dominion by taking control as Christians, of civil institutions, and the language you're using, the verbiage you're using, is collaboration. So relate for us Christ's lordship and collaboration. Why is it that Christ's lordship does not require us to take over, as it were? Because Christ is Lord, we might say, he can ordain things the way he wishes. And we know that for Old Testament Israel, for a particular time in history, a particular place in history, he actually did ordain his people to take over, to exercise dominion 
to expel unbelievers from a holy land. But that actually is not God's ordinary way of governing this world. So in that sense, is the New Testament more reflective of the ordinary? Again, I go back to Romans 13. I think about when Paul wrote that, who was in power? Nero was a young man, but highly immoral, not at all Christian, no sympathy for Christians, in fact, hostile to Christianity. And yet Paul calls him God's minister and assumes and expects that Nero wields the sword as God's servant and that he knows what to do with it. Right, at least to some degree, that there are going to be some good purposes that are going to be served by. And we know that there have been very many wicked rulers, and this doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do about trying to rectify bad situations when we have terrible rulers. But Paul says that we shouldn't misbehave, right? And so he assumes that Nero can determine when we've misbehaved, so that there are limits to what he knows, but he really knows some things, right? Yeah, that's right. And he's going to be held responsible for it. That's another side to this covenant with Noah that I think helps to get at this question of God's dominion over all things. When you think about this, this is what I was saying before, is does not in any way compromise God's lordship over all things. In fact, it, it establishes it, because what it's saying is that even in those areas of life, even those parts of the world in which the church is weak, the gospel isn't well known, you know what? Actually, God is in covenant with every single part of his creation. God is lord over that, and God is accomplishing his purposes, even through wicked civil rulers. It's not as if God will become Lord when certain conditions come into existence, right? Well, that's right. I mean, he already is Lord over all things, and he is accomplishing the purposes of his governorship. In a lot of ways, we don't understand. Providence is a very mysterious thing. And so what we're called to do, in whatever place we find ourselves, we are to seek justice within it. We are to try to promote right relations between one human being and another. But that also means giving proper respect to civil officials, whether we voted for them or not, whether they profess Christ's name or not. And we know that that can be a really difficult thing. It's a lot easier to pray for a politician that you voted for than one you didn't, one who stands for things that you like as opposed to one who stands for things that you don't. But the fact is, and this is not only, we don't not only find the command to pray for our civil officials in the Old Testament, say Jeremiah 29, but we find it in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other places. So we are called to give support to those who hold civil office to those who are, as Paul says, Romans 13 calls those who hold the power of the law God's ministers and servants, and he was not talking about believers when he said that. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.